All right, uh, Hosea chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. This is God's word, and let's give attention to it now. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his altars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king. For we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words. With empty oaths, they make covenants. So, judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of beth Aven. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters, the high places of Aven. The sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, Fall on us. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them, and nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for, the double, for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we tremble before these words, considering the gravity of them, that you are a God who is compassionate, slow to anger, and yet your compassion knows an end. Father, there is a time when your mercy ceases, your patience with your people ceases, and wrath begins. Help us to be a people who walk knowing Father, that your mercy is not indulgence. We ask in, this, in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. As we meander through Hosea, it's, 
it's helpful to think of God's will for the church. So uh, we, we think of this reminder uh, often, but I'll, I'll mention it again here at the beginning of our sermon, that when we think of Hosea and God's treatment of Israel, we aren't to think of any particular nation. This is an error that men uh, make on a regular basis. They look at Israel and they think, well, Israel, uh, we contrast Israel with the United States of America or Russia or something along these lines, but that leads us into error. Israel is not a nation, and we think of God's national covenant. Israel is the church. Israel is the church under age. Israel is the church having its comeuppance, as it, as it were. And so these are a special people. Uh, Israel is the people uh, to whom God gave his law. It is his bride, the one that he has set his love upon, the one who possesses his affection. It is his child. And and we see all of this language that God also uses toward the covenant people in the New Testament. We are the bride of Christ, just as Israel was the bride of God. And so when we think of this, we think of God's will for the church. And over and over in this prophecy, God's attention is on Israel's faithfulness. God's attention is on Israel's faithfulness. Think of this with me. There was no focus on Israel's accomplishments in the name of God. The number of converts, the number of meals served to the poor or prison visits. The focus is on holiness and obedience. We hear echoes of this in Christ's commission, don't we? As Christ is there on the mountain with the disciples and he is counseling them as to how they are to carry forward after he ascends up into heaven and begins his session at at God's right hand. What are they to do? Well, they are to go into all the nations, making disciples, baptizing them into the triune name and doing what? What are we to do? Teach them. Teach them to do what? Obey all of my commands. The church of Jesus Christ is to go out into the world, set an example of faithfulness to God's law, and teach the nations now to be obedient to God's law. God wants a holy church. Never forget that. God wants a holy church. He has redeemed us for the purpose of holiness. And as as we come to chapter 10, we remember in Hosea, Hosea's prophecy has turned to these agricultural metaphors. You read, notice in chapter 10, verse 1, Israel is a luxuriant vine. But if we back up to chapter 9, verse 10, we see that Israel there are like grapes in the wilderness. They are like the first fruit on the fig tree. And we we see over and over, we we, we notice as we read along about an ox uh, harrowing the ground, uh, plowing up the earth. And so we have these these images, I'll get it out in just a second. We have these images of agriculture. And God uses these agricultural metaphors to paint a picture of, 
of Israel's adultery, Israel's rebellion. Why, why is that? Why is God using this? Well, it's memorable, isn't it? They were an agricultural society. They could, they could remember all of these things because they could, they could picture an ox uh, plowing up the ground. And they can picture an, a, a grape uh, vine. They can picture an olive plant. But there's something, something more to it than that. One of the reasons that God is using this imagery is because Israel had turned aside from him to worshiping Baal. Now, just to give you a little bit of background there, remember uh, Balaam and the donkey? This is one of the, uh, one of the uh, uh, Old Testament pictures, one of the stories that we learn as little children. Uh, Balaam uh, rides on his donkey to go and prophesy curses over Israel, and God caused that donkey to speak to Balaam. What Balaam subsequently did was teach Israel to worship Baal. Baal, Peor, the god of fertility. Baal was also known as the god of the dew and the rain. Pagan people worshipped Baal as the one who provided for them He provided their crops to grow. He was the one that they asked to send rain. You remember the picture, don't you, of Elijah and 1 Kings 18. And the showdown between Elijah and who? The prophets of Baal. Where was that taking place? In a foreign nation? No, that was within the borders of Israel. And we see this picture of the prophets of Baal uh, calling out to Baal. They're cutting themselves so that he will come down, uh, cause fire to come down from heaven and burn up this ox that they've slain. And Elijah asks him the question, where is he? Maybe he's indisposed. Maybe he's in the bathroom. And that's why he can't answer you right now. All of this is taking place in Israel with the sanction of the king. What happened? All of the prophets of Baal were slaughtered and the king of Israel, Ahab, and his wife, Jezebel, pursued Elijah into the wilderness because he had slaughtered these prophets. So God is using this imagery. The very imagery that they have uh, uh, asked Baal to provide for them God shows that He is the one who has provided it for them and they have turned aside in rebellion. The first thing I would call you to notice in verses 1 through 4 is that God cultivated Israel, but she trusted in her prosperity instead of of Him. God cultivated Israel, but she trusted in her prosperity. Now, there's a little bit of a, a textual difference. If you've got your Bible, it may say to you that Israel is an empty vine instead of a luxuriant vine, as the ESV has translated it. And the Hebrew word could go either way. So some say that, uh, that the picture here is that Israel is, is not a luxuriant vine. She's a vine that everything has been plucked off of. In other words, this is God's mild discipline of His people. He's allowed them to go through a time where there's a a mild chastisement in order to get them to repent. And they did. But it was only for a time. And as soon as the vine began to grow again, 
What did Israel do? Well, they returned to their Baal worship. They turned aside from the Lord. But I think it's an interesting contrast. If you go back to chapter 9, verse 10, let's begin there. How did God find Israel? He didn't take them as a cultivated as a cultivated grapevine and make it bear more fruit. Notice in chapter 9, verse 10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. This is how he found them. God took Israel out of the wilderness. He, he took a cutting, as it were, of a wild grape plant, and he brought it where? To fertile soil and replanted it. And now he's, he's faithfully pulled the weeds away so that this wild grape plant would become a cultivated, luxuriant vine in chapter 10, verse 1. And this, what does this serve to show? God's love and his tender care over Israel. Baal hasn't provided anything for you. Everything that you have enjoyed, Israel, I have provided for you. Now, I want to take you back and have another reflection on Israel's history. If you would hold your place there, and let's just turn briefly back to Deuteronomy. We're going to spend just a, a minute or two back in the book of Deuteronomy. I want you to go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And look together with me at Deuteronomy 6, verses 10 through 16. Remember, the book of Deuteronomy is the last words of Moses. There are three sermons from Moses. And the setting, what is the setting? The setting is the second generation. These are the children of the people who came out of, is, uh, of Egypt. Remember all the people, that, that first generation that came out of Egypt, what happened to them? They died in the wilderness. Their children stepped over their corpses in, in the wilderness. And so here they are on the border of Canaan, ready to go into this promised land, and Moses is giving them last instructions before he would die. Let's read now chapter 6, verses 10 to 16. Notice what God says to them. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with, um, yeah, to give you with great and good cities, notice, that you did not build, and houses full of all good things, that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, notice this, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off, off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. So here, at the very beginning, at the outset, God is telling them, you will be tempted to do something. I'm going to give you wonderful things, 
wonderful blessings. You're going to walk into the city. You don't have to build it. You get to go in and choose your homes. You are going to eat the fruits from gardens that were planted for you. You won't have to dig wells. They will be dug for you. You just draw the water up. But you're going to be tempted in that moment to serve the gods of the people who lived there before you. Don't do it. I'm giving you these things so that you will rejoice in me. God delighted to pour his blessings out on Israel. He had redeemed them, brought them to himself, and then gave them the covenant of the law so that they would know how to honor him in their lives. And he prospered them. He reminded them in Deuteronomy 9.4, look, you're not receiving this land because you're more righteous than other people. He tells them in Deuteronomy 9.4, you're going to be tempted one day to say, we have this land because we're better than everybody else. No, God reminded them, in that moment when you are tempted to think that, remember that you own this land not because you're more righteous, but because the people who lived here before you were wicked and I kicked them out. Remember that. He said, so where did Israel go wrong? Well, if we think about Hosea 10 now, they became a luxuriant vine. If you hold your place, I'm going to bring you back to Deuteronomy in just a second, but we're going back to Hosea chapter 8. He said, the more that he prospered Israel, what did they do? The more they used the income from that prosperity for their idolatry. They used the income for their idolatry. The more God prospered him, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Turn back now with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let's hear again God's warning. There were two things that God warned Israel might happen to them. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verses 10 through 14. And you shall eat and be full. God is going to give you abundance. He's going to show you his grace and his mercy and his love for you in providing for you. And you shall eat and be full and do what with it? Bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given to you. Look, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God warned them. You will be tempted to forget me. And rather than drive out the inhabitants of Canaan, they allowed their children to intermarry with them and they became idolaters. Well, how does this have any application to us today? We are the church that has matured. We are not worshiping under these types and shadows. We are not looking back to Egypt. We are looking back to Christ. 
The Messiah has come. He has given us every blessing in Him. He has sent us His Spirit. We are not like them, are we? We would never, ever partake of the blessings and the bounty that God has supplied to us and think, look what my hands have done. We would never become that kind of a people, would we? Well, of course we would. And so Jesus in John chapter 15 borrows from the imagery of Hosea chapter 10, doesn't he? What does he say there? I am the vine and you are the branches. I am the one out of whom you grow. And what's he teaching us there? Where do you have this bountiful life? Why are you sitting in church while all the other people in your community are driving around and going to Walmart and spending their money and worshiping the God of commerce? Why are you here? Is it because in this room are the best and the brightest, the smartest and the most beautiful of Macomb and Summit? No. All of the credit goes back to Christ who is the vine. The life that flows in our veins comes from Him as the source. We remember that he, the Holy Spirit given by Him prunes and dresses us. The only reason we are not like our forefathers in the faith is because Christ by His Spirit is cultivating us enabling us to grow, enabling us to produce the fruits of righteousness. We are cultivated by His power to glorify Him more and more through reverent and holy lives. And the, the vines that don't bear fruit, what happens? They are cut off and cast into the fire. And so it's imperative that we guard our hearts in ways. And we have to ask, why is this pruning necessary? What is God doing? Well, it's, it's necessary because our hearts by nature are like Israel, wild and overgrown. We are not a cultivated people. We're not a holy and a righteous people uh, in and of ourselves. Our, our hearts need the cultivating work of the Holy Spirit. We need Christ but to get his hands dirty in our hearts to change and transform our hearts and attitudes. Because if he doesn't, what will we be? Just like our forefathers, who ate of the bounty, drank, out of, drank the water from the wells, and said, look what my hands have done, and forget the work that God has done for us. I, I've told many of you that we've enjoyed our home so far, but we are definitely reclaiming our yard. It is, it is wild. There are, there are vines growing up in my yard that can stand up on their own. They don't need any support. They are hardy, and they grow four feet a day. In the rain, eight feet a day. Um, I have wild golden bamboo, and it seems like it doubles every day. It, it, it just overgrows. And this is wickedness in our own heart. We are like Israel in this way. We need God to cultivate us. And what do we see? Let me ask you, when do you find that your prayer life is most fervent? Around the Thanksgiving table?
related to your doctor's appointment. You and I are just like this people, Israel. We pray most fervently when we need something, not when we are content. You feel the tendency of your heart to turn aside. And so our prayer is that the Lord would enable us to be a righteous people who are not content in things, but are content with Him. You see, that's what He wanted from His people. You have me. You have God in your midst. Don't let these things become God to you. And so God chastised Israel because they took more pleasure in the things he gave them than in he himself. Uh, Secondly, we see that God governed Israel in verses uh, 5 to 10. God governed Israel, but she rejected him as a king. Going back now to Hebrew, I'm sorry, Hosea chapter uh, 10. Pick up with me in verse 3. For now they will say, we have no king. For we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? Maybe he can do something for us. You remember the whole story in 1 Samuel chapter 12 and what happened there. Well, the people wanted a king. They wanted this visible monarch to sit over them. Why did they want that? All our neighbors have that. Everybody else has a king. We need a king as well. And what did the Lord say to Samuel when they demanded a king? Give them a king. Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They've rejected me. Even though during Israel's wilderness journey, what happened? Did they have a king? No. Did they conquer their enemies? Yes, they did. Did they want for food? No, they didn't. You see, God was leading them all the way uh, by the pillar of smoke by day and the pillar of fire by night. They had the tabernacle in their midst. They had true worship. They had the manna. They had all their flocks and herds. And God provided for them abundantly. They had children. And so when you read of the census in Numbers, uh, in the beginning and the end of Numbers, what happens? They grew. They were more fertile. God provided for them. Their sandals did not uh, wear out. Their cloaks did not wear out. And God conquered all of their enemies. And yet, what did they say? We need a king. What can he do for us? And God indicts them. Look, Exodus chapter 19. You swore to me. All of this we will do. You promised to keep my covenant. And yet, what does he say in Hosea 10.4? They utter mere words. It was meaningless. Your oaths are empty. They make empty covenants. And what's the result? You break the covenant. You suffer the consequences. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. You, you see the picture, don't you? Israel, they are out plowing their fields. And what are they doing? They're building altars to Baal. They're asking Baal to provide for them rain. Give it to us. Let us have it. And what does the field provide for them instead? The literal word here is hemlock. Poisonous weeds. This is also reflected in the sin. Israel's faithfulness is reflected in the sin in Gibeah. I actually wrote about this uh, this week in the pastor's note. But notice that God brings their attention to it over and over again. From the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel. For they have continued, there they have continued. 
Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? Uh, What happened? Well, they swore a covenant with the Gibeonite people. And they were faithless to that. They swore to protect the Gibeonite people, and yet Saul killed them in his rage. And God points them out to be a people who swear oaths with their fingers crossed behind their backs. Therefore, God brought the curses of the covenant upon them, weeds and thorns and thistles. And as a result, Israel became ashamed, not before God, but before the other nations, so that they're crying out, let the mountains fall upon us. One interesting thing about reading Jewish commentators on the Old Testament, reading through Hosea, even in the Song of Songs, every time that we would point to Christ, Jewish authors would point back to Torah. They will say, see the beauty of Torah. Genesis through Deuteronomy. Look at the beauty of the law. We even see this in the Psalms, don't we? In Psalm 119, over and over, the psalmist there depicting Christ and the heart of Christ is saying, oh Lord, I love your law. It is a beautiful thing to me. These picture for us Christ's delight in fulfilling the law of God. He delighted to do God's will. He, as the great oath keeper, is the righteous king of Israel. You see, the transformation that Christ brings about in our lives is that he takes us from being law haters to law lovers. Why? So that we can obtain God's favor in our lives so that maybe he will bless us more No, we do so as a response to what God has done for us. Christ, by His Spirit, transforms our hearts and our minds and our attitudes to be like His. So that we read Psalm 119, now we say, that's me. Christ has made me one. He has opened my eyes, and now I see wonderful things from God's law. He renews the inner man enabling us to love God's governance, you see. Israel didn't want God uh, governing them. They believed that an earthly king would be better. But us, as Christ's people, we have a king ruling over us, don't we? And who is it? The righteous Lord Jesus Christ, who is subduing us to himself and conquering all his and our enemies. Lastly, thirdly, we see that in verses 11 to 15, Israel sowed unrighteousness and they reaped calamity. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Last time we looked at these verses, we saw that Israel sowed the wind and they reaped the whirlwind. Well, here they are using different seeds. They're using the seeds of unrighteousness. Israel, at the end of the day, Israel was to blame for their estate. Why? They rejected God. They loved the creation more than the Creator. God was abundantly patient with them. When we were thinking this week, if you read the, uh, the pastor's note, uh, God waited and waited and waited to discipline them for killing the people of Gibeah, which Saul had done. They, they should have responded by throwing Saul out, saying, you've broken the covenant, Saul. You can't be king over us anymore. But they 
were indulgent of Saul's sin. And so they themselves reaped the consequences as if they had committed his sin with him. God was abundantly patient. And we remember that he is slow to anger, isn't he? He had faithfully cautioned them to stay on the path of righteousness. Even, we think about Hosea. How long did God send Hosea to them, preaching to them day after day after day? And and after Israel was taken into captivity, he sent Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and all of these men over and over and over to prophesy to his people, saying, repent, come back to me, return to the Lord. But God's patience does not last forever. This is the error that many people make today. Even Peter in his epistle refers to it. He says some people think that it's just going to go on like this forever. But God will not be patient forever. And even here, Hosea reminded them that God would receive a repentant people. Look with me at verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness, Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. What do you think that he's referring to there? What is the fallow ground? The wild ground? The the uncultivated ground in Israel? What is it? It's the heart. That's where you need to plow. That's where you need fertility. That's where you need fruitfulness and change. Break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord that He may come and rain righteousness upon you. And we take from this, we remember that God demands holiness from His people, even a redeemed people. And He's always ready to receive those who repent and turn to Him. You will be greeted with His kindness and His love. But Israel rejected every single one of His overtures. Every single one. You think of the man. Think of the man who comes Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. He sits under the preaching of the Word Sunday after Sunday, night and day. Uh, day and night. He sits under the preaching of the Word. He hears all of these calls. <coughs> Excuse me. Repent. Turn to me. And yet he never does. This is Israel who hardened their hearts over and over and over. Notice Uh, Verse 15, the irony of this. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. You remember the history of Bethel? In Genesis chapter 31, a young man by the name of Jacob was fleeing. He was on the run from his uncle Laban. Well, he, was, he began by being on the run from his, his uh, brother, uh, Esau, who was seeking to put him to death. And he laid down in the wilderness, you remember, and he laid his head on a rock. And as he dreamed, he fell into a deep sleep. And he had a vision in that night. And what did he see? He saw angels ascending and descending on a ladder. So we talk about Jacob's Ladder. This was a picture of Christ and the blessing of God coming up and down upon Christ Himself. Christ is the ladder. Uh, but He named that place Bethel, which means house of God. He said, surely God is in this place. And now we find that thus it shall be done to you, O house of God. You see the irony in the language? 
O house of God, place of God's dwelling. What has it become? A place of great evil. Now, the house of God is not the place of the dwelling of Israel. It is set against Israel, and they have become a foreign nation to him. Therefore, at dawn, that is when soldiers go out to war at the break of day, Israel's king will perish. If you think of this, remember that God, he delights to bless his people. And it is true that those who meditate upon God's law, as the psalmist said in Psalm chapter 1, uh, those who meditate upon God's law ought to expect His blessings. Not, not just eternal blessings, but temporal blessings as well. Uh, there is reason, because God has promised to bless those who pursue righteousness. God rejoices to provide abundantly for His people, but you and I have to take care never to worship that which God provides never to seek that as an end in and of itself. You rejoice in the things that God provides. Why? Because they come from His hand. As we close this evening, I ask you to meditate upon a prayer that John Calvin wrote in his commentary reflecting on on this passage, he said, Grant, Almighty God, that as we remain yet in our own wickedness, though often warned and sweetly invited by you, and as you prevail not with us by, by your daily instruction, that is, we don't turn our hearts, O oh, grant that we may, in a spirit of meekness, at length turn to your service and fight against the hardness and obstinacy of our flesh till we render ourselves submissive to You and not wait until You put forth Your hand against us or at least so profit under Thy chastisements as not to constrain You to execute extreme vengeance against us, but to repent without delay and that we may indeed without hypocrisy plow under your yoke and so enjoy your special blessings that you may show yourself to us not only as our Lord but also as our Father full of mercy and kindness through Christ our Lord Amen let's pray Father in heaven we freely confess to you that we are a people who are inclined to do evil. We are inclined to sit under sermons like this and, and we go home and we forget that, that you desire holiness in our lives. It's not, we are not to be a people who lean on forgiveness and take forgiveness for granted and say, oh, God will forgive me if I sin against him. No, we should not put your mercy to the test. <clears throat> yes, we delight in your grace. For we could never be your children apart from it. And all law-keeping would be meaningless apart from it. Father, help us also to be a holy people. To be the light and salt of the world through our good deeds. We ask this in Christ's name. And for the sake of His glory. Amen.